Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here, and you are listening to the Stimulus Podcast, where we break down ideas, strategies, and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. No, don't do that. Think differently. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician, and now my day job is, well, making this pod, and as an ICF certified coach, most of my days are spent helping docs work through burnout, as in this job does not feel sustainable. Overwhelm, too much on my plate, and I'm not even sure where to begin to find breathing room. Leadership challenges, for example, just worked with a CMO on a project to improve the hospital's culture. Where to even start with that? Career direction. What am I doing with this thing? I put so much time and effort and money to get here, but I'm not sure where I'm going. Maladaptive habits and behaviors. You know, I do this thing that seemed to be okay or tolerated when I was a trainee, maybe even celebrated a little, but it's now causing me problems. If you hear any of that and you think, yeah, you know what? I've got something I'd like to work on. Give us a shout through the website, roborman.com and set up a free coaching discovery session. Yeah, it's free just to talk about clarity on your challenges, dig into what success would look like, and see if coaching is a path that might help you tackle whatever it is you got going on. Learn more at roborman.com. Our guest today, Mike Stone, MD, precision medicine physician and sleep expert with Wild Health. Here to talk about, well, sleep. And as a proviso, Wild Health has been a sponsor of this show in the past, and I am a Wild Health patient, which frankly is why I tapped Mike Stone to be the guest for this conversation on sleep. So proviso provisioned. Now, this is a topic that, let's be honest, has been covered extensively on many podcasts, deep dives. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here today. More so, the focus of this conversation is your questions. Over the years, we've gotten many listener requests for a sleep episode and really specific and detailed questions on this topic as it applies to life and career, whatever that career may be. But really, it's all come from people in healthcare. Every, every topic request, every question on this. So that's the perspective we've got. And I will say 100% of your questions are addressed here if you have sent one in in the past. Now, does this apply if you're not in healthcare? Of course, because you know the beauty of it is that everyone sleeps. So this episode is for everyone. Shazam! We're going to cover caffeine, alcohol, light exposure, night shifts, transitioning between shifts, THC, CBN, CBD. Yes, yes, the ganja, one of the most frequently asked questions, believe it or not, and much, much more. But let's get into it. Talking sleepy time with Mike Stone. So when you sleep, feels good when you wake up and you know when you don't have enough sleep. <laughs> But like, what happens to your brain, your body, your brain waves when you sleep? What happens to our brain waves in general? They slow during sleep. And why is it important sleeping in general? You know, a lot of stuff happens while we're sleeping. We generate growth hormone. We repair damaged tissues. We form new synaptic connections and improve our memory. We activate the glymphatic system, which is like the coolest thing ever. I yes, don't know if the, I've ever even heard that word. Did you just so make that when, up? 
I didn't. So, okay. so when you and I were in medical school, there was no such thing as the glymphatic system. It just hadn't been discovered yet. But essentially, sleep is a rinse cycle for the brain. The glymphatic system is a, a series of perivascular channels that get flushed with CSF during our sleep. And if you're flushing it out the brain, you're getting rid of toxins and toxic metabolites that have accumulated over the course of the day. Like glial lymphatics? Exactly. Okay. Um, And they've done uh, some studies where even after a single night of sleep deprivation, you can measure like significantly increased beta amyloid in the CSF. Wow. This is a a bad college student study to be enrolled in, but here we're going to keep you awake all night and then we're going to do a lumbar puncture on you in the morning and measure your beta amyloid and your CSF. So even one night's missed sleep has consequences and all of that happens while we're sleeping and only while we're sleeping. So no wonder that things like dementia, cardiovascular disease, all cause mortality, et cetera, all go up in the setting of sleep disturbance and sleep disruption. Is it thought to be causative? Because you could also say like, oh, well, maybe somebody's brain has a a predisposition to not sleep. And that's also a brain that has predisposition for dementia. And But then you were just talking about beta amyloid accumulating when you don't get great sleep. So is there evidence that actually not getting quality or enough sleep leads to these things? Or there's some other unclear association? It's complex and multifactorial in the sense that as you develop dementia and early signs of cognitive dysfunction, sleep impairment does tend to worsen in patients with dementia. And and any practicing clinician has seen this with sundowning patients and sleep disturbance and insomnia with dementia. So sleep gets disturbed as dementia develops, but plenty of evidence that sleep disruption, I mean, if you just look at shift workers, versus non-shift workers and people with chronic rotating shift schedules and chronic sleep deprivation, higher incidence of pretty much any disease you can Google. So whether it's hypertension or cardiovascular mortality or dementia, all of these things are increased in the setting of sleep deprivation. And it does look by my read of the literature convincing enough that it is at least partially causative. Okay. I, so a little bit out of order here, because we want to start with general and they get more complex, but I notice in the deep winter, I sleep horribly. And now that we are recording in early mid-spring, I'm sleeping better. And what I notice is I wake up uh, like one or two times per night. And in the winter, I can't fall back asleep. But now with the sun out, it's the only thing I can identify because my schedule hasn't changed, my exercise, my diet, none of that's changed. Even like, you know, I was binging Loki last night on on, uh, on Disney Plus. Oh, so good. And Great show. Oh, my gosh. I was like, oh, God, I'm staying up way too late. I was able to fall back asleep. I did just fine. It's like, is it the sun? Does that have impact on sleep length and quality? Yeah. I mean, I think in training your circadian rhythm by getting light exposure early in the day and then limiting light exposure late in the day is critical for getting great sleep. And I would think there's a few things going on. Number one, just because you fell back asleep after watching Loki until one in the morning doesn't mean you necessarily got good quality restorative sleep. It's possible, but uh, <laughs> but that's one. But in all seriousness, we're less likely to go outside 
in the morning and go for a walk and get 30 or 40 minutes of sunlight when mm. it's cold and snowy and cloudy and rainy and miserable. And we're much more likely to do that when it's nice outside. So you're probably getting more exposure to direct sunlight or at least direct light, as in my case. So, you know, I'm three hours north of you and I just need uh, light through the clouds in Portland. I don't need direct sunlight or else I'd never sleep. So it's just about getting light that isn't filtering through a window that isn't filtering through sunglasses. And, you know, if you're really stuck, I guess like a light box or something that you could use in the mornings in the winter, if you really just don't want to go out because it's miserable. So early morning sun to set that circadian cycle. So I'm thinking now about getting a light box in my office and just turning that on in the morning in the winters. And well, you know what? I think I'm going to do it. And then we'll revisit this next spring and we'll see how it worked. Done. We're booking the follow-up podcast already, 2023. I'll send you the Calendly link right now. Here we go. All <laughs> right. So I want to talk about sleep trackers for a minute. My wife and I have been using the Aura Ring for mm -hmm. about a year. But before we get to that, I want to get into the different sleep stages, you know, REM and, and deep. Is one more important than the other? Does one do something for a different part of the brain than the other one does? Yes and no. Um, <laughs> Wait, was it no? So, yes, okay. So, um, you know, brief review slash primer on sleep stages. You can break sleep stages down one of two ways, I think most commonly. One is into two stages, so non-REM and REM, and then the other into four stages, which is really just breaking down non-REM into kind of light sleep and deep or slow wave sleep. So the two most important phases of your sleep are deep sleep, also known as slow wave sleep, and REM or rapid eye movement sleep. The way that this usually works or is supposed to work is there's like a 90 to 120 minute cycle that we work through where we start off light, we get into moderately deep sleep, we move into deep sleep, and then we move into REM. And you go earlier in the evening you're getting a bigger portion of that cycle in deep sleep or slow wave sleep. And later in the evening, you're getting a bigger portion of that cycle in REM or rapid eye movement sleep. If it's 90 to 120 minutes and you're trying to sleep, I don't know, eight hours or so, you're you know going to cycle through that about four or five times in a night, progressing from predominantly slow wave sleep to predominantly REM sleep over the course of the evening. Is one stage more important than the other? You know, Deep sleep, really important for memory and cognition and that feeling of restfulness. And then REM sleep, also really important for forming new memories and synaptic connections and, and our ability to learn. So I think they're both equally important. There are some things that we do to ourselves that uh, will disrupt that sleep balance and get us, say, predominantly deep sleep and no REM. And that's a problem in the same way that it would be a flip the other way. I know some folks, these are docs, ER docs and critical care docs who sleep three to five hours a night and said like, Hey, I've just been this way since I was a kid. And it's just mm -hmm. always what I've done. And, and they say that their sleep is like 90% deep sleep. I don't even know what to make of that. If you're really worn out, like you train really hard, you didn't sleep well the night before, maybe you went out and indulged and you know drank the day before that, and you're stringing a bunch of days together where you're not getting good restorative sleep, you'll definitely have a bigger proportion of your sleep be a slow wave or deep sleep. I think that there's definitely some truth to that. Your, your body will try and catch up and say, you know, I desperately need this slow wave sleep 
especially since that's the sleep that's favored early in the sleep cycle, you're going to just fall deep into that. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) I always appreciate a good pun, even if it's not intended. Yeah, that one actually was accidental. I should have just embraced it. No, I can see. I'm yeah. actually looking at your face. Listeners, you can't see this. It's a non-video yeah. podcast. Thankfully for this episode. Oh. with my, my <sighs> we, are, we are not well quaffed. No, no, no. <laughs> no, day. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure on my best day. It's a good video podcast, but definitely not today. <laughs> so, all right. So, something I've been dying to ask you, because I know that you are talking about this with patients, is a sleep tracker. So, we've got these rings that kind of give trends, right? It's not exact and it's not like you're going into a sleep lab and having your brain waves. So you can kind of see the trends of your deep and your REM and your light, et cetera. And I'm wondering, all right, how do I use that smartly? Like what is the benefit of that besides telling me kind of kind of what I know? Like I feel rested. I got good sleep. This just confirms it versus oh, I had a crappy night's sleep. And oh yes, thank you very much for that sleep number 69 horrible score. <laughs> what do I do with this? Oh, there's so much to unpack there, Rob. The, I, uh, um, the, I get the I get the crown, like the super nice crown on that thing once every two months. I think, like, ah, you you nailed it, buddy. Yeah, crushed, crushed, crushed. Sleep. I crushed. Gonna, sleep. Yeah, I just absolutely annihilated it. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's I, there's so much to unpack there. All right. Um, first, uh, a word about wearables. If you're going to be stressed out about getting a bad score on your test and <laughs> getting a, a, a 52 on your sleep tracker. Maybe you shouldn't be sleep tracking. There are definitely some patients for, and I'm, I, I don't get the sense this is you, but if it is no judgment where just that negative feedback loop is yeah. like, there's, I have enough stress in my life and I don't want a device telling me that I'm not doing a good job. Right. So there are patients where we talk about it and it's just a bad idea or they try it and they're like, you know what? I'm just, I'm lying awake at night thinking about how my sleep score is going to be terrible. And like, that's not healthy. So, you know, there's some folks who I say, it's just don't, don't bother. You know, human beings have been sleeping for a long time before there were sleep trackers (laughs) in terms of trends. These wearables are a, a poor substitute for a high quality sleep study done in a sleep lab. I do think that the trends are really useful for N of one experiments. So drink a glass of wine before you go to bed and see what that does to your aura ring the next morning as compared to a night when you didn't. Go to bed earlier, make your room colder. Don't eat for three hours before you go to bed, as opposed to, you know, snacking on some Doritos before you fall asleep. You're going to see some really remarkable changes day to day based on lifestyle intervention. It's one thing to hear that you should stop eating three hours before you go to bed. It's another thing to see that data falter again, give yourself another night where you, where you stop eating earlier, see your sleep scores improve. You know, there's something that's really great for habit forming and good habits about seeing the impact that your efforts and your behavior has on how you sleep. You mentioned alcohol. I want want to dive into that because you're speaking to an audience, many of whom work night shifts or have scattered sleep and, alcohol, but, you know, used in many, for many different reasons, but often as a sleep aid after night shifts or Mm -hmm. sometimes even before. 
And oh, it's like I went out to many a post night shift breakfast at Mama's in Oakland, and they served beer, good food. <laughs> I mean, I, listen, I I hear I hear you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about drinking a beer before you go to sleep after your night shift, your post night, is like you got to pee in an hour. <laughs> it just wakes you up, but. You're speaking to an audience who is has some basic knowledge of sleep and that alcohol is not good for sleep, but you definitely fall asleep afterwards. Mm-hmm. So what happens to sleep, like the falling asleep and then the sleep quality after you drink? As opposed to caffeine, which my hunch is we'll, we'll probably get to that at some point too, the mechanism by which alcohol disrupts your sleep is still not totally clear. It's been known that it has a negative impact on sleep for you know almost 100 years at this point, but there isn't really a clear mechanism there. I think a side effect is the antidiuretic hormone action that you're talking about where you're going to need to get up to pee. But even without that, even without a, a bathroom break, it still disrupts your sleep. What we do know, since we don't know the mechanism really well, what we do know is that the effects that alcohol has on sleep are uh, predominantly on REM sleep. Slow wave sleep tends to be relatively preserved or even a a bigger portion of your sleep. And that doesn't really shock me. I mean, it's a CNS depressant. Slow wave sleep is when we're deepest. Um, It seems like that would kind of go hand in hand, but it does tend to really decrease the amount of REM sleep we get. Could you have one drink before bed as opposed to having like four drinks before bed? There is a dose-dependent response, some actual prospective data on this where one drink may on average decrease your sleep by about 10%, whereas two plus, you're up to maybe 36, 40% decrease in your sleep. So it's definitely additive or or dose-dependent. Is there a time before bed where you're not going to have the impact? The the studies that I've seen have, have really looked at like sort of three hours or less before bed. If you're going out to dinner at 7 p.m. and you have a glass of wine and then it's 10.30 and you're trying to go to sleep, is that going to demolish your sleep? It's very unlikely. As with all things toxin-related, which alcohol is just a, a glorious, beautiful toxin, zero is the best. And then if you're going to take some of it further away from your sleep and less of it is probably wiser. I mean, it, it's interesting. One of the other benefits, just to tie us back to sleep tracking, that I find of a sleep tracker is I know now what I cannot drink in terms of what type of alcohol if I want to have a good night's sleep. I can have a tequila drink as long as it's not like right before I go to bed. It's a few hours before I go to bed. My sleep looks about the same. If I have one glass of wine, red wine, three hours before I go to bed, I'm going to awaken like three or four times over the night and my REM sleep is going to be in the tank. That's probably not the same for everyone. My guess is it isn't. One of the nice things about sleep tracking is you get to try this stuff out and go, wow, you know, I I don't drink red wine anymore just because I know I'm not going to sleep that night. Yeah. One more thought on alcohol. We have another mutual friend who I will speak with in the afternoon who's occasionally drinking a mixed drink at that time, three o'clock or so. I said, what are you doing? I only drink in the afternoon because if I drink at night, then I can't sleep. And I had just, I guess, my implicit bias on, on afternoon drinking was like, that's a problem. But it turns out it's just super intentional. It's like, hey, if I want to have a drink, this is the time I'm going to do it. 
And, and then that's it. There's no nighttime drinking. I was thinking, okay, wow, just totally changed my thinking on that. I've been somewhat fascinated with the balance of our circadian biology and our social norms of late. There's increasing evidence that eating early in the day and stopping eating much earlier than would be socially acceptable in Western society is really good for you from a insulin sensitivity, weight gain, body composition standpoint. Eating from, say, I don't know, uh, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. makes you a real dud in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's sort of the same thing going on with, with, with our friend there is, yeah, it makes a whole lot more sense to have an alcoholic beverage at 3 p.m. instead of 9 p.m., but you're probably going to be on a Zoom call drinking by yourself. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what happens. We know from Blue Zones and cultures like the Mediterranean culture that being with people that you love and, and uh, celebrating and dancing and speaking and singing together, there's plenty of health benefit from that alone. So uh, where that balance can be struck of being able to engage in communal social activities and to gain that joy and, and that health benefit, but also to not carry on late into the evening doing things that we know we should have stopped hours ago. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the sweet spot. I love that you brought that up. I, actually, I, was, I was talking to a doc years ago about alcohol and you know about the health benefits. And, and this was right after the whole red wine thing of you know like, ah, oh, red wine's good for us. I go, so what are the health benefits of alcohol? And the answer was, there are none. Alcohol is a poison and it's going to increase your risk for this and this and this. I was like, yeah, yeah, but all of these studies. And it's like, no, alcohol is, is a toxin, just as you said. But it's that, hey, okay, maybe within red wine, there are some things, but there's still alcohol in red wine, but it gets you into these other situations, which are not only cognitively beneficial, but physiologically beneficial of making those social connections so I started drinking non-alcoholic beer a while ago. Athletic, do you drink athletic brew? You ever had this? I have had those. I don't really like to drink. So I drink like kombucha or athletic brew. Now you're part of the team, part of the crew. You know, you remind me of when my, I take my kids to their pediatrician. My boys are almost high school, almost middle school. And we love our pediatrician. And he always asks them for like the last two or three years. So what's the amount of screen time that you need to be healthy? <laughs> And it's exactly like your, your alcohol question, but he poses it and nothing's better than the first time he asked both of them. Right now they're on to him and they're like, zero. <laughs> but the first time they're sitting there really thinking about it, like, do I, do I aim high? Do I, is it prices right rules? How do I answer this? Don't overbid. Don't yep. overbid. Always underbid. 12 hours. Yeah. I, I try to be really deliberate about screen time. And then you get that notice on your phone. It's like, your screen time is up this week. How is it always up? How is Actually, it always going I've up? got a great aside about that. The measurement tool is really important. We know this from, from medicine, but yeah. we, we don't pay that much attention to it with our phones. I got a screen time notification that I was up like, I don't know, 15 or 20% a couple of weeks back. And I, I actually like dug into the little details where it breaks down what apps you were using. And it's because I had about 12 hours of all trails. 
<laughs> you just left it on. And I, it was it was navigating because yeah. I was in places that I didn't know. And I was like, oh, well, I guess if, if that counts as screen time being outside hiking, then sure, guilty as charged. That's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's a, a great segue is, is 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 looking at screens. I guess is is it the blue light from the screen? I think it's the light. Out? Matthew Walker's talked about this. Huberman did a good podcast on this not that long ago. It's really unfortunate that we need a lot of light to wake up. So you got to really either have that light box going or get outside for 30 40 minutes and get a, a bunch of photons in your eyeballs. But at night, we really don't need very much to keep us up. And I think it's just looking at phones and getting that light exposure, having all the lights on in the house, that kind of stuff in the evening. It doesn't take that much to trigger your brain into thinking it's not bedtime. I mean, we were biologically evolved to have a relatively 24-hour, and it's like a little bit off from 24, but a pretty close to 24-hour sleep cycle. Things got dark at night. That was our signal that it's time to go to bed. And it's only, you know, in the last hundred years or so that things, the lights can stay on and you can have a light beaming into your face from your phone and getting all this stimulation from Loki or whatever else you're watching. Um, it's just, it's, it's not how we're, how we're wired to sleep. Um, and it, it, it goes against all of our, our circadian biology. Speaking on the topic of light when you're trying to go to bed, I think one of the worst habits that we have is having a phone or an iPad in the bedroom. And I mean, I, I used to read Kindle on a device, mm-hmm. and which was, and like that light is just searing, even when it's low. And then changed many years ago, changed to an actual Kindle. And then I put the Kindle on like dark reverse mode so that it's just super light. And then my, phone i actually put in my office which is across from the house and i'm not able to access it until uh, even when i get up it's certainly not the first thing not the second or third thing i look at it's like i actually have to walk across the house to get it and then you know try to get natural sunlight if you can manage to not have a screened device in your bedroom or wherever you sleep regularly, it pays dividends. It's a hard habit to break. I'm guilty as as much as anyone. I mean, I still I still use my phone as my alarm. Let's take a break for a moment to introduce you to our Patreon page. This podcast is produced by two people. There's me and my other half, definitely better half. We find the guests, conduct the interviews, edit the audio, craft the detailed show notes. We've got web hosting, et cetera, et cetera. And the expense to do all this isn't insignificant. So if you find value in this show, please consider supporting us by making a donation to our Patreon page. And a hearty thanks to those of you who have already become Patreons, keeping the wind in the sails. We'll have a link to our Patreon page in the show notes, both on your podcatcher and on the website. Now let's get back to our conversation. All right, let's talk caffeine. caffeine. All right. Um, oh, I love caffeine. Yeah. Why does caffeine wake you up? As opposed to alcohol, I, I think we know a little bit more about this. Caffeine blocks adenosine receptors. And adenosine is one of our big signals of when it's time to go to bed. Adenosine builds up during the day. Not in the way that it builds up when you push 12 milligrams really fast and flush an IV with it, but it builds up during the day. As it builds, it makes us sleepy. And caffeine 
blocks the adenosine receptor, antagonizes the adenosine receptor. So we are less sleepy and we're more alert. So makes perfect sense. There's probably some additional effects of caffeine outside of just the the adenosine receptor. And interestingly, you know, we do at Wild Health a, a bunch of uh, you know, genomic analysis. And we look at a couple of single nucleotide polymorphisms around CYP1A2, Adora2A, um, which have to do with how fast you metabolize caffeine. So if you're not metabolizing caffeine as quickly as as your your friend or neighbor, you may be more sensitive to that adenosine blocking activity later into the day, which can impact sort of when you should stop drinking coffee or or when you can get away with it. So what is the time window when you want to not have caffeine? Or if you do have caffeine later, what's going to be the effect on your sleep later if you do fall asleep? I think as opposed to alcohol, it, you know, it's kind of interesting. The effects of caffeine and alcohol are, are opposite on your sleep architecture, and they're kind of opposite in terms of how they make us feel, right? So not, not that surprising, but more of an impact on your deep sleep and decreasing the amount of quality deep sleep that you get as opposed to REM if you do uh, disturb your sleep with caffeine. You know, caffeine half-life is like four to six hours on average. There's been studies looking at caffeine use even six hours before bedtime, which have resulted in on average an hour or less of sleep. That's it's kind of nuts. It sticks around a lot longer. If you're a slow metabolizer, you could be looking at up to 12 hours later. That's, that's your effective caffeine half-life. So don't drink coffee six hours before you go to bed. I think there's enough evidence to suggest that it doesn't really matter what your SNPs are and your genetic gifts or challenges. I think that's probably good advice. On the other hand, if you can give it up altogether, you're probably you're not going to risk any sort of sleep disturbance. I have a great tale to tell about both night shifts, which I know you want to talk about, and caffeine. And this is a uh, this is a, a personal tale. So I started drinking coffee when I was, I don't know, 16. I gave up drinking coffee for the only time about two years, two and a half years ago. It was an N of one experiment. I was like, Let, let's see what I can do with my sleep if I if I give up coffee altogether. And you know, my habit at the time was a couple of double espressos in the morning. And I really didn't drink coffee other than that, unless I was working a late evening shift or a, a night shift. So I gave up coffee. I gave it up for almost three weeks and my sleep improved. I was getting better quality deep sleep, better quality REM sleep. It like across the board, I was just like, wow, I actually don't feel that cranky. And then three weeks into it, I had a night shift scheduled and it was a 10P to 6A shift. And I did my regular routine before a night shift, which was I would make a pot of coffee and I would drink two full cups of coffee. And then I would go into work. And I'd already gotten rid of the sipping coffee through the whole shift habit, which I'd had for years prior to that. So I drank two cups of coffee, went to work, came home. And if I got home at, let's say like, I don't know, 7.30 in the morning, I fell asleep at one in the morning um, and was up the whole day post-night shift, just wired out of my mind. So there, there's definitely a tolerance perspective that comes with it because that would never happen to me otherwise. And if you're really naive to caffeine and you take a big dose, or if you just take a big dose bigger than usual, you're going to see some much longer than 12 hours in terms of putting your sleep at risk. I want to hit two more things on caffeine. One of my oldest and dearest friends, Rans Tobers. And when we have dinner, he has, and sometimes we'll have dinner late. 
he'll have coffee like at nine o'clock or nine thirty, and then he's asleep at ten o'clock. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? This has to affect something negatively. You you can't be such an outlier that it doesn't. I'm not sure. It could just be an outlier. Could be that his sleep architecture doesn't look great, but he feels rested anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Rans. Uh, a, a don't change. To be, don't, don't change. Don't man. change who you are, baby. Don't change. We love oh. you. Don't change who you are. I mean, at the end of the day, right? Like uh, this kind of gets back to the wearables in the first place conversation. We existed for a long time before wearables, right? <laughs> if you if you feel like you're rested, you have energy, your concentration and focus are good. You feel restored after a night of sleep and you had a cup of coffee beforehand. I'm the last person to tell you you should change that habit. Okay. Totally opposite of caffeine. And I, and I don't even know what kind of data there is out there. This might just be N of one data, but let's talk about the ganj. Let's talk about CBD, CBN, THC, and personally have tried almost every permutation of this and tried the CBD for sleep. I did not get benefit. Tried CBN, which is just like another one of these chemicals mixed with THC, got definitely high from it. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I cannot say that my sleep was any better. Tried it multiple times. And in, and, and these are definitely sold as sleep aids and we've got you know, anecdotal experience of friends who get great benefit from it. Is is there any data on these things? Like, yeah, you know, worth it to try or just still the Wild West don't know? Um, how many times did you keep trying, Rob, just to see if it would help your, <laughs> help your sleep as I'm air quoting, which you won't see on the podcast? 20. <laughs> 20 until i could really this time it's gonna work i swear really it. If it like all right um, <laughs> maybe i'll just stay up yeah <laughs> who wants to sleep i'm having too much fun binge watching loki i think there's a lot of person-to-person variability here there's definitely differences in the endocannabinoid receptors and you know some people may find really great benefit i definitely have patients who where i i've seen their aura data with cbd use with cbn use and it's pretty remarkable and they've done you know all right i won't take it let's see what tonight's like and you know how much of that is placebo and how much of that is really it's not like they're they're blinding themselves as to whether they're taking it or not it's not a rigorous study I think that there are likely people who benefit from various forms of cannabinoids for sleep. I haven't seen anything to make me feel like this should be a universal recommendation. So I think for people who are really struggling with falling asleep, I think it's certainly something worth giving a shot. And then, you know, two or three or (laughs) 30 times later, if it's not working, maybe it's time to move to a different strategy. My general approach with optimizing sleep for patients is is much more lifestyle focused than supplement focused. And I look at at CBD, CBN, THC as as more of along the supplement lines, a natural supplement, but still a supplement. Talking about lifestyle, like those are the things that personally I've found to be the most beneficial. And and I don't know if this I want I want to get into kind of like mental activity before work in a moment, but first I want to talk about heat, which mm. I found to be one of the biggest impactors. You know, hot room, hard to get good sleep. Cold room, great to get good sleep. And then it's like, okay, well, how many blankets? Because you don't want to freeze. Is there an ideal room temp for optimal sleep? I don't know if there's an ideal temp, but there's definitely an ideal range for most people, somewhere between like 64 to 68 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. I, I think that's the the right spot. I am 
so on the cold side where we're usually just windows open most nights, regardless of what season it is, except in the really hot summer months. And then I'm either air conditioning or a cooling pad. Oh, like a, chi- like a chili pad? I think, I think they've rebranded as Uller, O-O-L-E-R. But yes, just like a chili pad, circulates cold water. You can set the temperature. We've got one for the for our bed, that temperature on one side, other temperature on the other side. And I'm literally trying to break mine and get it to freeze. The <laughs> lowest possible, I think it's like 56 is the, the temp you can set it at and yeah. just cold, cold, cold. But that's not for everyone. My wife can't sleep when it's that cold. Thankfully, We've got a sweet spot of mid to low 60s for the room temp that works for both of us. And I think most people somewhere in there is is the sweet spot. I know people who are, you know, 62, 63 and other ones who are high 60s, but yeah, cold room is is super beneficial and such an easy intervention. I thought about getting one of these pads and I was worried about, all right, is it going to feel kind of weird underneath me? And then the noise from the, right, it's kind of got like a, I don't know, swamp cooler or something to Make it yeah, cold. it's got a little bit of white noise, and if that's going to be an issue, then uh, that you may not work for you. To me, it kind of blends into the background. They've gotten quieter with time. If you're really sort of sound sensitive, it might not be worth it. Does it get the Mike Stone recommendation? Not this particular brand, but trying this te- this uh, device. Personally, yes, I use mine. I think it's awesome. But if you want to do a quick experiment to see if this type of temperature modification would work for you, take a hot shower. Get out of the shower right before bed, get out of the shower, dry off and get into a cold room and try and go to sleep. You're going to find, I think, that you're going to transition into sleep much, much more easily. Um, So I think just messing around with temperature would be a good place to start. And if you find that a really cold environment helps you sleep easier than, you know, whether you want to do a a cold weighted blanket or or an Uller, I mean, those things are, they're not inexpensive. Um, Like a ground or something it depends. I mean, you're getting like a queen bed or a dual yeah, unit yeah, yeah. or I mean, what, you know, it's like, What's that, really... what is the hot shower? Is that, are you just like venting heat or something? Like what is the thing? You're cooling that? your core temp. You're diverting blood to your skin surface to deal with the heat and to get some evaporative cooling as you get out. And then you're, you're kind of dropping your, your core temp a little bit as a result. That seems so counterintuitive, right? Take a hot shower to cool down. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's when you get out, right? You know, it's that you're you're not cooling down while you're in the shower, but then once you get out, <laughs> okay. that room feels really cold. I'm trying that tonight. I will report back in yes. the morning. It's going to be a very underpowered study. All right. I want to change gears to some of the things that you do before bed and habits and behaviors, or maybe bad habits and behaviors. I don't know if there's any data on this, but personally, no emails or cognitively engaged work. Boy, Two hours minimum, four hours ideal before sleep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're going to just rattle off some quick ones for sleep hygiene, no devices in the bedroom. When it starts getting dark outside, start darkening the inside. That doesn't mean you need to turn off all the lights and start tripping over things and ending up in the emergency department. But, you know, like turning lights down, your eyes will adjust. You can make it a little darker than you think at first, because within about 10 minutes or so, you're going to, your vision will adjust and you'll be able to get around with a lot less light. Um, Cold room, hot shower before bed. If you're really struggling and you're dealing with night shift work or something like that, blackout curtains and avoid that early morning light. 
and then yeah you you don't want to be doing like our culture is insane where it's okay for bosses to send emails to people and coworkers to send emails to people at midnight or one in the morning like notification if you can't get your phone out of your room you know the the newest version of uh, or or second newest version of the of the iPhone software of iOS lets you you know set sleep as a do not disturb and literally nothing will come through no emails no notifications nothing and i think just calming the mind whether it's meditation you and i i think have spoken before about yoga nidra meditation which is meditation really for sleep which is i think phenomenal um you you really want to be taking that time in the late afternoon early evening to start that routine and then by the time it's bedtime to really be just shutting things down for the night my son and wife are big proponents of magnesium I'm mm-hmm. curious, have you, you know, as you are tracking your patient's sleep, do you find that that in fact does improve sleep architecture and duration? I tend to break down the supplement world into are there known risks? Is it inconvenient or expensive to take? And is there convincing evidence? And in general, if you've got two out of the three, it's probably, I'm probably cool with it. Three out of three, even better. And magnesium is inexpensive there really aren't known risks in in the appropriate dose ranges and it does look like there's some decent evidence to support its use so if you've done all you know you've worked your way through all of the lifestyle interventions and you're still struggling with your sleep i think magnesium is totally fine to try before we jump into night shifts which is definitely something i want to dig deeply into i want to clear up a question i've had for a while and it's the concept of the early bird and the night owl and I wonder if that is an actual distinction or, or is it something like, hey, it's just a habit that you have developed over time. And that's why an early bird and night owl. And then if we do have a certain predilection for a particular bed and waking time, should we try to shift shifts around that? Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking about chronotype. Um, you say it's an early bird night owl chronotype. Yours, I like yours better. That's chronotype. There's different chronotypes and they are... They are intrinsic preferences for early bird, night owl, and and there's even a couple of other variants in there. Um, there's some pretty cool, you can go online and just Google chronotype and like take a quiz and see where you are in terms of your likely chronotype. Most people are in the wake up around 7 a.m., let's say more or less, and go to bed around 9 or 10 p.m. Some people, though, really are kind of biologically wired to be sleeping in late and staying up late, and it's the way they're wired. So I, I think if you if you know your preference and you that's just the way you're wired, you've kind of always been that way, and you can adjust your work schedule to help fit that. That seems like a like a great idea. All right, let's then let's have that fantasy meet reality, <laughs> and then the reality is the night shifts, right? It's just yeah. Well, the reality is that if most people are wired to wake up around 7 a.m., let's say more or less, then yeah. most people shouldn't be working night shifts yeah. to fit their sleep schedule. <laughs> right. I think there are very few true noctotypes. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a it sounds like a Spider-Man villain. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, it's uh I get we're thinking the cape and the mask. It's like I've already got the outfit popping up in my head. So night shifts, night scheduling. And after I turned 40, I found that I could do one night in a row, 
right? It was, I mean, right. Okay. So that's not in a row. That's just one. And in, when I was 30, I was essentially a nocturnist. That was the, the group that I had signed on with. It's like, hey, the new people work nights until someone can come in and take your nights from you, which we also call eating your young. But when I did those three, four, five stack shifts, I was a zombie and a bastard. I've read so many different things about night scheduling and the ideal this and the ideal that. Is there any kind of that, like, okay, here's the, here's the honest truth about night scheduling, that here's what works if you can do it, or it's just, you know what, it's just always going to kind of suck. So number one, completely identical experience. Um, I mean, we did five shifts or six shifts at night through residency. We, you know, I did tons of nights. I used to go work uh, a string of four or five 13 hour night shifts in a critical access ED to moonlight as a new attending. And it was nothing. It wasn't easy, but it was, um, it wasn't bad. And then right around 40, I was like, this is the devil. (laughs) I can't do this anymore. I'd love to say to a, to a, an audience that, that has many emergency physicians in it, I've got a really great solution that's going to solve your night shift associated sleep disturbance. And I don't, I think that there's some techniques that definitely can help, but at the end of the day, we know that night shifts and especially night shifts where you're switching and kind of rotating shifts. So you're not just a dedicated nocturnist who also lives on a nocturnal schedule when you're not working, but actually switches back and forth these rotating shifts of some late evening, some late afternoon, some overnights. It's just not good for us. We're not, we're not supposed to do that. And there are significant long-term effects on mental health, cardiovascular disease, all-cause mortality, dementia. Like it's, it's the truth. It sucks. Somebody also needs to be there at two in the morning when there's a massive car accident or somebody has a heart attack or you know whatever else is going on or somebody needs a medication refill or a pregnancy test or whatever you know whatever the case may be. The world needs our society needs night shift workers, um, and we expect there to be police officers at three in the morning and fire department and and you know it's the life we chose in emergency medicine. So, what can we do to make it better? Light exposure is a really easy one. Just to give an example there, I would, you know, what you want to do is kind of trick yourself into thinking that when the sun's going down, it's actually coming up and vice versa. So if you're able to be awake before your night shift to actually get a little bit of the sun at sunset, if that's the first sun exposure of the day, your brain is going to think that it's morning. And then when you get off of your night shift, really good sunglasses, wraparounds, even better and don't look at light before you go to bed. And then the morning is now your nighttime. So you can get a little bit of help that way. Caffeine timing, really important. You want to balance the ability to stay awake and be alert on a night shift with not completely screwing up your sleep when you're trying to sleep after your nights. That's a tricky one because you got to kind of balance it with the safety associated with driving home. We know that there's lots of car accidents after uh, night shifts. Everybody knows I've either been in one or, or had a friend or a colleague who was in an accident driving home after a night shift. Family or roommate or whoever you live with buy-in is critical. So you want to be able to come to a cool, dark, maybe white noise environment, get your family and or, or friends or whoever you live with to buy in. If you're able to do something about deliveries, 
that's always the worst. I, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, Rob, of the doorbell ringing when you're when you literally just fell asleep post nights, or the neighbors mowing their lawn or something. I mean, it's, oh, it's just a leaf blower, baby. It, it it takes effort, but actually not that much. I mean, I think most people, if you went to your neighbor and said, "Hey, I'm working a night shift tomorrow night on Friday, can you not?" blow leaves. I think most people would probably say, yeah, sure. That sounds terrible. You're up all night. Generally don't eat on the overnight. This is a really tough one. Oh, interesting. Um, feeding on overnights tricks us into really having a harder time going to sleep in the morning for, for some people, not for everyone. I, I'm talking about people who are, who are rotating shifts. So you're like, what you don't want to do is trick your biology into thinking that you're going to, that this is the new normal, right? So if you're going to, there's some things you can't change you can't change the fact that you're actually awake, but you can keep your biology otherwise more stable by eating at the regular times. Some people have actually suggested kind of switching the type of meal. So if you're going to eat after you get home, hopefully a couple of hours before you go to bed to make that dinner or dinner type foods, ah. and then have the first meal of the day be more <laughs> of a breakfast type food. So when we're talking about night shifts, we are, <laughs> there's not like, ah, here's the answer for longevity and beauty with this. It's like, okay, here's the damage control. We're doing damage control right now. So let me, let me ask you a couple questions on this. And th I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you have an answer for this or not, but let's say you were starting an ED group or you were starting a group with night shift workers and nobody wants to be a nocturnist because I think that's easy. It's like, oh, you're the nocturnist, you're the day people. And then you nocturnists stay on your night schedule when you're on your off days and you just live at night. No, everybody is rotating shifts. How would you set it up to be humane and for people to have the least impact or the least damage? That's an amazing question. So we have to work nights, <laughs> but nobody was. I'm just, I'm just going back to core principles here. Is, are, are we sure we have to, okay, so we have to work <laughs> nights and, we, uh, and nobody wants to bite the bullet and be the full-time nocturnist? Um, all right. I think a lot of emergency department groups do this anyway, right? I mean, this idea of marching forward instead of marching backward with your shifts. So you're, you know, if you're working a 3 p.m. one day, you're not working a 10 a.m. the next day. Instead, you're working a 7 p.m. or an 8 p.m. or something like that. I don't have a, a magic bullet here. It, it'd be a really unpopular thing, but I actually think I'd double cover nights and make the shift shorter. We're at our cognitive worst overnight. I think the amount of just, you know, noradrenaline and adrenaline going around being up at four in the morning with a, you know, a super sick patient or something really stressful happening in the ED can't be good for us. There's this culture in emergency medicine that like, I'm fine. Quien es right? mas macho? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. It doesn't matter if there's four codes going on and it's two in the morning and we're short staffed and the hospital's full. Like I got this. And I think that the reality is it's okay to recognize that it's shifts that are double covered are easier than shifts that are, that are single covered. And I think, you know, if you could have a night shift that started at around 10 P and went to somewhere in the, you know, three thirty or three, three a range. And then another one that started at like two a and went and brought you over to the day shift and had some overlap there. Um, I think that I'd, I'd mess around with, with those kinds of scheduling, I think shorter, more, more coverage, 
And then just making sure you're always marching forward and giving people a couple of days off after night shifts. I think the, you know, what you alluded to in your forties, that change, I I think it takes days to recover. What happens is, and most most of my clients are ED docs or acute care or hospitalists, and it's it's all the same kind of shift thing is that the scheduling happens. You work a night shift and then your next one after recovery is a 6am. It's like, okay, this got gotta consider the long-term impact of that and just there is no way to replace time in the recovery period you need time to recharge you you just can't compress that it's like okay i'm gonna do this other thing and i'm gonna recharge faster need time recharge reset i worked in a group that ended up doing that double night coverage it was amazing it's actually just down the street from you yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I've got a good buddy down in Southern Oregon where people are scrambling to sign up for them because they're yeah. double covered. Yeah. They're, they pay a little bit of a night differential and it's just easier when there's a second person there. I mean, think about being able to take 40 minutes on a night shift or a half an hour on a night shift and go take a break and like lay down. Yeah. Right. I mean, I've, that critical access place, I used to work those strings of nights. It was occasionally slow enough where I'd be able to go lay down for a little bit. And it's, I mean, a, a dramatically different experience than just being full, full on, full throttle. Awake, yeah. yeah. For the whole time. We did it before that happened, tried a whole bunch of different permutations. And there was one time where for a year we did 4 a.m. starts, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the casino shifts where. You know, you work like a six a six hour shift starting at four. It, oh my god, it was horrible because you you couldn't fall asleep the night before. <laughs> you just get up at three in the morning and just be like, oh man, this is the worst night shift ever. So I get that the casino shifting when you're. What do you like? I don't know what is that. You come in at four. You go to. 10 or noon. Yeah, it's basically sh- the way I think about it is just you know shorter shifts with more overlap, um, which means more shifts. Right. So that's, I mean, we, we struggled with this in, in, uh, in, you know, one of my groups where we had a bunch of docs who lived about an hour away because it was an amazing place to live from a lifestyle perspective. Um, oh, oh Hood, and, Hood River. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, my and, God. You know, that's a white knuckle drive. Docs, oh, docs communicating through the Columbia River Gorge for an hour plus, you know, in either direction. I bring it up because the idea of like, adding more shift numbers, even if they're shorter to the schedule was anathema to them. Like, what do you mean? I need to come back here. Right. They'd, you know, if anything would rather work, you know, longer shifts and fewer of them. So it's tough to find that balance in a group. To me, the double coverage more important than the, than the overlapping shorter shifts. Um, I think it's nice to have a shorter shift, but in most groups, if you really look at the, the shifts, like the nights tend to be the longest. Yeah. 13 hour night shifts, baby. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, that was my, you know, and the rationale is, well, it's busier during the day. Um, And yeah, sure. I mean, numbers wise, it's busier during the day, but like what's more cognitively and physically taxing, it's definitely the night shift. What do you think about working singleton versus a multiple of Mm -hmm. of nights? I would say for me, I definitely transitioned to one-offs sort of right around 40. Although I did have one cool hack that I'll that I'll oh that I'll, oh yeah let's hear it All right so I would do a couple of late afternoon shifts so mm-hmm. I'd end around midnight prior to a night shift so like let's say it's Thursday I work three p.m. to midnight Friday I'm going to work at ten p.m. All right so I'm already kind of used to being up a little bit later 
I would stay up a little bit longer after I got home on the last one of those and then go to sleep, try and aim to go to sleep around like two or three in the morning, because then I'm almost at a night shift sleep schedule. I'm close. I'd then work the night shift and then schedule a late, like a 6 P shift we had the day after the night shift. And what I found was I could work that overnight shift. And I, I stole this from one of my partners, Chris, who, who introduced me to this concept. So I can't claim credit for coming up with it, but it really worked well for me. Would I get off that night shift, come home, go to sleep. So sunglasses in the car, just keep it all quiet, blackout curtains, white noise, cool room. The kids knew not to wake me up and go to sleep. And then I'd never sleep much later than two in the afternoon on my best day of post-night sleep. So I'd get up at two if I was lucky. I'd have a couple hours at home. I'd go back at six. And then when I got off shift at two in the morning, I was done. And I would go home and sleep normally. And then I was on a regular day schedule. Wow. Oh my gosh. So it's it's a little bit of how could he? It's like they're going back, you know, you're stepping backwards instead of stepping forwards. How dare right? you, Mike? Stan. How dare you do that? That's like the one thing you already told us not to do. But but for transitioning from nights to days, there was something forcing about having to shift there mm-hmm. that helped me stay back on a regular day schedule. So I'd, for I'd say the last like four or five years of my career, I really tried to do uh, night shift into a late swing into a couple of days off at least. Okay. So I'm envious of your length of sleep after you get home. That was always something I struggled with was trying to find the optimal routine after the shift. And you're talking about, okay, get the sunglasses on, just, you know, no, no light, white noise, chill, just get right to bed. I found that first, if I would to kind of stay up and mess around and have a meeting or a discussion or I'd get two hours of sleep. That was it. If I tried to go to sleep earlier than that, then maybe I'd sleep for four hours. Four was my max. That's most I ever slept after night shift. But it's kind of like that later morning, kind of around noonish, maybe like between 10 and noon falling asleep. It's like, okay, that is the sweet spot of getting horribly low amounts of sleep. And like, what is going on there? I think it's probably the same as looking at light when you're supposed to be winding down. I had the same experience. I think a lot of docs. when you're in your twenties and you're in residency, you get off your night shift, you go for a run, right. And like go out and get some breakfast with people and yeah. do something else. And then like squeeze in three hours of sleep and go back and do it again. Um, but for like the long haul, I think you got to sleep when you get back. And I think you really got to just, you know, maximize your environment, cold, dark, quiet, right. Or white noise, whatever you want, minimize disturbances. I would generally sleep from around 8 AM to around 1230. Um, on a really good day, I can make it to two. Um, Did you ever take an assist like an Ambien or? I didn't. I mean, I, it's not that I've never taken an Ambien in my life, but it was never a regular part of my routine. What I would do is try and get another hour to an hour and a half late in the day before I went back. Little nap. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would almost never nap, but there was something about just laying down and, and just, you know, turning my brain off, no phone, just, you know, chilling now, you know, I, I'm not working nights right now, but I would do some, uh, some more meditation before sleep. All right. I want to talk about melatonin. Can you build up a tolerance to exogenous 
melatonin such that if you don't take it, you can't fall asleep. Oh, you know, this is, I, I feel a, a, a deep malaise about melatonin conversations because I think there's, <laughs> there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of strong opinions on the subject. I don't think there's a lot of really strong, well substantiated evidence to support those opinions. I don't think so. I can't see why you would become addicted in the true sense of tolerance dependence to melatonin. I've definitely had people tell me that they take it regularly and then if they don't take it, they can't sleep. So maybe that's maybe that is what's happening, but I, I don't see how. I would think that if you were taking it exogenously, that maybe you'd have down regulation of your naturally produced melatonin. I don't know. I mean, I guess, but how long is that going to last for? I mean, we're we're literally like wired on a circadian rhythm, right? I mean, are you going to get a couple of nights bad sleep before you start making more of your melatonin or is it suppressed? You know, are you permanently changed in the way that somebody with like long-term opioid use has permanently changed some of their opioid receptors? I don't know. I mean, I, and, and I, that's, that's why I'm filled with this, this deep malaise is everyone's opinions about these tend to be strong. And whenever I see lots of strong opinions, it makes me nervous. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's, it's interesting to, to hear that answer. Cause I mean, I, I think you've read like every paper ever written on melatonin and then the answer you come out is, you know, what equipoise this is like yeah i mean for me it is so i'm going to take a very politician approach to to answering this and say my approach to melatonin is that i think it's very useful for some people particularly with uh time zone change a lot of folks have used it for night shift resetting and swear by it what do you think about using melatonin for that after a night shift trying to fall asleep in the morning I think there's uh, zero harm to trying, and I would tie it back to sleep tracking. I would say mm. that is that is an excellent opportunity to do a couple of night shifts, try melatonin after your night shift, see what your sleep looked like. Certainly, you may have some subjective experience that trumps whatever your sleep tracker says, right? So if you're just like groggy for the whole next day and you feel miserable, um, it doesn't matter if your sleep tracker tells you that you got great sleep. But let's say you kind of feel the same either way, or maybe feel a little bit better, and it looks like you really did better on your sleep. That seems like a great thing to try. I mean, it it is a signaler in circadian rhythm. It does seem like it might be able to provide some benefit for people working odd hours. Um, but I, I I just don't think we've looked at sort of regular melatonin use in rotating shift workers to be able to say, are there long-term harms? Harkening back to the, is there good evidence to support it? Is it expensive? And are there risks? No, it's not expensive, not terribly. Are there risks? I don't think we know enough about long-term melatonin supplementation. I mean, there are some you know people who who tout the hormonal effects of melatonin. There's what are the long-term effects in terms of tolerance and your endogenous melatonin systems. I, I don't think we know. It doesn't strike me as a terribly risky met, uh, supplement to take, but if we're going to be honest about it, I don't think we know. And then are there benefits? I mean, subjectively, but there's no Cochrane review and meta-analyses upon meta-analyses. And, you know, this isn't, we're not talking about aspirin and cardiovascular disease, right? We're talking about something that's less well-studied than this particular use case. I love how you arc back to the sleep tracker and using it as an experimentation device because it's just going to be how it affects you. That's the answer. It's like, what, how does this dose affect you? How does this timing affect you? How does it affect you when you're you know, sleeping the night after a night shift? Does it help? Does it not? I think 
that right there is worth the price of admission of your tracker. Heck yeah. And you don't need to track forever. It's okay to gain insight into your sleep and figure out what sorts of interventions work for you, what sort of bedtime, what environmental factors, what supplements, if you choose to take some, what sort of meditation practice, et cetera. And then when you feel like you've figured out what works for you, if you don't want to track your sleep anymore, you don't have to. <laughs> Right. It's just, it's only, only if you're a data nerd like me and, and you, you, you like looking at that stuff or it's, you know, professionally and personally interesting. Sure. Mike, this has been awesome. Appreciate your time. This is the most content I think we've ever had in one of our pods, which are usually like a third this length. So but you should cut out most of the nonsense and uh, just keep the good stuff. So, and- so listeners, when you notice this podcast was actually five minutes long, that comment will really be <laughs> quite confusing. <laughs> All right, Mike, thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> and that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching and or sign up for a free coaching discovery session, check us out at roborman.com. That's also where you'll find the complete show notes for this or any other episode, a few free EMR charting templates, a new thing we've got. There you can also sign up for our newsletter and we've got a few other surprises on the site. You might say, well, what are those surprises? Well, they're surprises. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.